0: Before we start this episode, we wanted to note that there's some descriptions of sexual assaults in this episode, as well as mentions of trauma, especially when it comes to refugee issues. It may be one that you want to hear without kids around.
1: So if we can start, if you can tell me your name Mm -hmm. and how
2: old you are. My name is I'm 14 years old. Dilan or Dilam. Okay. Let's try that again. Okay. So what's your name and how old are you? My name is Dilan I'm 14 years old.
0: Dilan is speaking to our producer Zena Duidar. Dilan is not her real name. We're using a fake name for her and
1: her family's protection. And how long have you been in Sweden? Uh, 10 years old. You were 10 when you came to Sweden?
0: Yes. She's still working on her English at school. Her Swedish and her mother tongue Kurdish are much better.
1: Also, if you want to... Reply in Kurdish so you can talk more. Yes. You can, and then she'll translate for you. Okay.
0: Zina spoke to her through a translator and asked Ilan if she can recall some of her favorite things to do with her sister.
2: Yes, I read in the book every day with my sister and I say, please, can you wake up? You and me go to school, but she don't listen to me.
0: Ma your mom. This is Dilan's mother. She's telling us about when her other daughter, Leila, first started showing symptoms of an illness that would soon change their lives forever.
2: This summer in 2017 she was not feeling good at all and even one day when she was playing with her sister outside because she was uh, overthinking too much and she had a bad headache so her nose started to bleed and when her sister tried to come and let me know she told her not to tell me and she cleaned her nose herself.
0: Everything got worse on August 31st, 2017, at the beginning of the new school year in Sweden. Dylan and her sister Leila were outside playing in the school playground when Leila's symptoms suddenly got worse.
2: When is she first is sick, I say, oh my god, what happened? Because I'm in the school and she talked me and say I have a uh The uh, headache. Yeah, uh, she have a headache? Uh, it was around one o'clock uh, afternoon when I got uh, uh, many calls from the teacher I was then uh, at the I had a dentist uh, appointment and when I answered the teacher told me to go immediately to the school because my daughter uh, fainted and then the teacher uh, said that it was like my daughter almost like lost her um, like mind uh, and then uh, when I went uh, to school and there I arrived there, she peed uh, in herself and she was still uh, uh, unconscious and uh, I was to- trying to talk to her in her ears, but uh, she didn't react. she only uh, I only saw tears from her eyes. <laughs>
0: And since that day, when Leila fainted in the school playground, she's been what we'll call asleep. Really, it's more like a state of sort of sleeping, sort of in a coma, all day, every day, for almost five years now. Her parents feed her through a feeding tube, and her body doesn't move much at all. Her eyes are closed, but she's mostly conscious. And nobody, not doctors, not psychologists, and not even her own family— can get her to wake up again.
2: She's always the same, it's been five years and we don't even understand what is wrong with her, what was her guilt to be like this. Uh, This is very, very difficult to have a a child with this uh, condition and you don't have even no clue why is this happening. Today on
0: Kerning Cultures, a medical mystery that has seen hundreds of refugee children in Sweden, just like Leila, succumb to a sleep like state known as resignation
3: syndrome.
0: And one story that always kind of captures my imagination is the The streets lost culture. (laughs) And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. This story has been on our minds for a while. Producers Andre Popovicu and Zena Duidad have been looking into it for months. Andre is a freelance journalist and producer, and he's been working on this story with our London-based producer Zena. So, when you talk about being asleep for like uh, months and years, like w- how is that even possible?
4: So, I think particularly for these kids, being asleep is in some ways quite similar to an actual sleep, actually being asleep as a, as a person.
1: And the way I sort of describe it is, imagine you're taking a nap and someone walks into the room and opens the light. You're, you're aware that the light has been opened and you're aware that things have changed in the room, but you're still in your nap. You're still asleep. It's not like you're going to wake up because of it. And I think that's sort of the level of sleep that you can imagine she's at at the moment.
4: What's odd about their condition and their way of sleeping is that the sleep is long. So it it goes on for months and sometimes years.
1: Honestly, we had no idea how to describe the syndrome. We'd been researching it for months and we were nowhere closer to getting a real feel for what state these kids were in. And so we wanted to speak to someone who's an actual
5: doctor, someone who could help us figure out what it's really like. Okay, so well, my name is Deborah Stein, and I am a child and adolescent psychiatrist in Toronto.
4: Deborah works mostly with asylum-seeking and refugee families in Toronto.
5: If I were to describe resignation syndrome as I understand it to a colleague, I would say that it is a a state of true kind of, I guess, shutdown and withdrawal from the world, where uh, a person uh, becomes non-responsive to the world. S- stops speaking, stops behaving, stops eating, stops responding.
1: And the reason we spoke to Deborah was because resignation syndrome doesn't affect all children in Sweden. In fact, there's never been a documented case of a Swedish child with resignation syndrome. All cases of resignation syndrome have been exclusively in asylum-seeking families. Families just like Lila's. And is that something you've ever seen in any of the families that you work with in Toronto?
5: Not in my asylum-seeking families, not in my newcomer families, absolutely not, no. Somehow, all these cases are in Sweden. Not in Denmark or
1: Finland or any other country with similar climates or geographies or immigration systems.
5: Just Sweden. The Swedes had the same question. Like, why is it that we're seeing this in Sweden? And they saw that the the families that they saw who had the resignation syndrome were actually mostly from the Eastern Bloc. And they actually, I I believe they traveled to those places to actually ask psychiatrists there, have have you seen this there? And of course, the answer was no. This is is not something that we, we see in these cultures.
4: Many people, particularly in Swedish politics, had previously tried to say that resignation syndrome was a cultural phenomenon and would cease to exist if they stopped letting in refugees from countries in the Balkans and the Caucasus, where many of these asylum-seeking families come from. But Deborah disagrees with this. She thinks it's deeper than that.
5: I use the term idioms of distress to describe the way we speak distress from our bodies and in our behavior uh, in very local forms. Um, And so much like there are dialects of a language, there are dialects of um, distress.
4: Understanding what this means took quite a bit of time, but let me try to break it down for you. Just in the same way that we have different words for ouch, so in Arabic you'd say I, or in German you'd say awa, what Deborah is saying is that the way our bodies respond to stressful situations is also different. And what you can start to find is almost specific physical responses that you wouldn't really see in other places in the world. And somehow, something in Sweden was manifesting in these kids as resignation syndrome.
1: And to really get to the bottom of this, we had to go there ourselves.
4: Hello, Zainab. I just arrived in Stockholm. Um, it's a little past midnight here, and it's minus five degrees. Um, so pack warm clothes.
1: In the depths of winter, Andre and I flew to Sweden, where hundreds of cases of resignation syndrome have been recorded. Getting there wasn't easy. There were many COVID restrictions we had to abide by, and even finding my way to our hostel that first night was a struggle. Excuse me. Sorry, could you help me figure out how to get to, get to this exit? That exit. So like, I need to go there.
4: But Zeyna finally found her way. And the next morning, we were off to our first stop on the trip. And probably the most important one.
1: While researching resignation syndrome, all our leads led back to one person who could help us. Dr. Elizabeth Hultkrantz. We knew that Elizabeth was one of the only people who could help us speak with some families and learn more about what the syndrome is. But Elizabeth was not an easy nut to crack.
4: Yeah, before I went to Sweden, I've been talking to Elizabeth for weeks on end through emails and phone calls. And I felt like she was trying to get a feel of what we were trying to do, what questions we were trying to answer, what type of story we were trying to tell.
1: She was our only way inside families' homes, and we needed her to like us. Otherwise, our whole trip to Sweden would have basically been for nothing. To help us. Okay, it's one of these ones on the left. Uh no straight up ahead of it. I guess there will be numbers, right? This is 12, tw- what? 22, 18. 16. Yeah, and she's 14, right?
6: Huh?
1: Okay. So, that's... Well, so it must be this one. Oh yeah, I see the number on the
4: postbox. We were nervous as we pulled up to her home.
1: <laughs> love the sound of snow.
4: Elizabeth greeted us by the door of her home, wrapped in an almost floor-length duck-blue-down jacket. She waved at us with quite a big smile, her jet-white, short hair moving only a little in the wind. I had already met her briefly the day before, and so Zena was definitely the more nervous one between us.
1: Did you hug her or did you shake hands? Or
4: like, what was Uh, the vibe? uh, You,
1: she doesn't want to hug. OK. Should we put our masks on? But we said our hellos and slowly settled into the car. We had a long journey ahead of us, and Elizabeth was quick to get straight to the point with me. She had already questioned André the day before. So what is your background now? What is my background? Yes, so um, I actually went with Drew to the same university.
4: It felt like a challenge to really convince her and show her that we have good intentions and that we're there to just learn more about the story.
1: As a doctor, she had visited over 100 children with resignation syndrome, trying to support them and their families in solving the puzzle. And that makes her naturally protective over them. Other people had come to Sweden and told these family stories in ways that were really harmful, even putting the families in danger sometimes. So we really had to work to earn her trust.
4: And once she was happy with our answers, Elizabeth was ready to start being interviewed. We did the first interview in the car. We had a few hours to kill before meeting our first family. And she told us how she first got into this work, over 10 years ago.
3: It was uh, 2008. Uh, I had had just started to work for uh, doctors of the world. And the reason why I... Uh, worked with them was that I had started to see my coming um, pension that I was going to stop working and uh, I wanted to have something meaningful to to do and I realized that I was uh, a bit too old to go out with the uh, doctors without frontiers and things like that. So doctors of the world they work in the countries and take and, and, and meet the refugees which are in the country. And then I could come home and sleep in my own bed and so on <laughs> when I was working there.
4: While working for Doctors of the World, Elizabeth heard about cases like Leila's of kids falling asleep for months or years on end.
3: So, So at that time, I had a chance to go and see one child who was in resignation syndrome. I was at a seminar somewhere, a women's seminar, and I overheard a conversation between two women that they were going to see a child in resonation syndrome. And she had been laying for one and a half year and she was hidden from the authorities so they didn't know about her. So I just say, oh, hey, can I join you and go there? Because it was on my way home uh, after the seminar. And when we came there, and uh, they let me into this girl, she was, I think, 10, uh, ten and a half years, and she was laying in a small room uh, with the shades down, and, and uh, it was completely quiet. It was extremely quiet. And I was just sitting beside her, and, and it was so I, I mean, I was just uh, it changed my life. And that was probably, I almost cry when I talk about this because it really influenced me. I was sitting there and the only thing I heard was my own heart um, banging. (laughs) And uh, because the girl was completely, she didn't move uh, at all. I could just see that her eyes under her eyelids were moving a bit in a more, almost like nystagmus, which I'm used to uh, and the only thought I had in my head is that uh, if this had been a Swedish child, she shouldn't have been laying here for one and a half year with a tube in her nose and diapers. That was the only thing I could see.
4: Elizabeth became fascinated with resignation syndrome and dedicated her life to helping families with kids who have the illness. One of these kids is Leila, Dylan's sister, who we met at the top of the episode. Elizabeth took us to meet them. It was a four-hour drive west of Stockholm, and we had quite some time to get to know each other.
3: We have been traveling by car for some hours, and it's very beautiful around us. It's a a pale December sun, and very much frost around us. It's very cold now.
4: It was freezing, and once again, we were nervous. We didn't know what to expect when meeting Leila's family. And we didn't know what to expect Leila to be like either. But on our trip, we had time to learn why Leila's family came to Sweden in the first place. Elizabeth had Leila's parents' permission to share the story. Leila and her family came from a small Yazidi village in an area we won't name for their protection.
1: As far as Elizabeth gathered from speaking with the family, their backstory goes like this. There wasn't much in the village and its surrounding areas, and according to them, there were often fights between families to secure land for their livestock. Laila's maternal granddad had one of those fights with the neighboring non-Yazidi family. And one day soon after that, Laila's mom, Bahar, went on her daily walk to the local well to fetch water for her family. But she took way longer than she usually does, and so Ahmad, her husband, went to look for her.
3: And there he found uh, Bahar on the ground, uh, unconscious, and she was bleeding.
1: Bahar had run into a group of men from one of the other families in the village, who had recently argued with her father.
3: They raped her, probably all four of them raped her. And uh, Bahar was uh, pregnant in the third month, and uh, this uh, rape caused her to lose her, her fetus. And
1: while her husband Ahmed was trying to support her, nursing her back to life, her dad was enraged.
3: While she was laying there between life and death, uh, her father came every day several times and banged on the doors and windows and said that uh, because of what had happened to her, he had to kill her because of the honor of of his family. And so they knew
1: they had to escape. Ahmed's family sold their livestock to get money for smugglers, who smuggled the couple and Laila and Dylan through Europe and into Sweden. They were still afraid of her father. They told us that he had threatened that if they leave, he'll hire assassins to kill her, wherever she is.
3: What he said that I will, I will search for her my whole life and I will kill her as soon as I meet her.
4: They had been in Sweden since then, 11 years they had to move around several times and now live in a small city.
1: Okay, so we're in the middle of a city center. It's a really big square and there's a big Christmas tree. We parked outside of an apartment building, going up the stairs, ow.
4: Their home was on the fourth floor of a council estate on the corner of the main road. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Once we were upstairs, we found ourselves in a one-bedroom apartment for a family of five. Their living room walls were adorned with peacock images, which is the Yazidi god the community worships. Leila's younger siblings, Dylan and Memo, greeted us with a lot of excitement, particularly about our equipment.
1: Hello, my name is Memo. Leila was in a wheelchair with the back leaning at a 45-degree angle. Her parents had dressed her in a pink sweater and blue pants, and her hands rested on her lap almost holding each other. Her eyes were closed, but her sister Dilan would always make sure she was facing the TV, talking to her and asking her whether she wanted Dilan to change the channel. Laila didn't respond. She hasn't responded to anyone in over five years.
4: While we were speaking to her family, she was sitting with us in the living room, in her wheelchair, but she wasn't interacting at all. You could still feel her presence though, in the way her siblings moved around her and talked to her, in the way her parents glanced over at her every minute to make sure she's okay. Elizabeth even gave her a present when she first entered the house. One that lay on her lap until her mother picked it up later.
1: Her parents feed her every day through a feeding tube and change her diapers. They massage her muscles to try and make sure they don't atrophy, and they talk to her all the time to maintain a sense of normalcy. Lila looked exactly the same when Elizabeth first met
3: her five years ago. The first time I met this family was uh, in the fall 2017.
1: Elizabeth had heard about the family through her contacts and went to visit them after Lila had fallen asleep.
3: And when we came to the home, I found the girl laying like they always do. She seemed almost younger than she was. And she was nine, I think, but she looked younger, really, and rather short. And she was laying completely quiet in her bed.
1: But Laila wasn't always like this. Her parents said that back in their home country, she was always an active child, running around and making trouble. Laila
2: was very naughty. Uh, When she was growing up, she was always... uh, uh, climbing on the doors, and she was always hurting her uh, fingers because she was uh, very naughty. And she didn't like to sit still in one on one chair at all.
6: <laughs>
2: we had a very nice uh, life there with our neighbours and the relatives. We were all Yezidi people in the village, and we, we spent even our childhood Together with my wife there, we we both grew up there and we, we both had a nice life there. But then we got some problems and we had to uh, come to Sweden.
4: They picked Sweden because they knew no one there. No one could tell Bahar's father that they saw her. But that also meant that they had no one to help them when they arrived. And the first few months were tough.
6: It was
2: very, very cold. In our country it wasn't as cold at all. So when we arrived, it was very cold for, even for us and the children as well. Then we had to buy winter clothes and we were like poor people who are arriving in a new country who know no one and don't even know from where to buy food, etc.
4: But soon, the family settled in and the kids began making friends at school. They started to learn Swedish and over the years integrated into Swedish life. Despite this, they continuously struggle to secure permanent residence. The migration agency made it very difficult for them to do so.
2: So here in Sweden, it's not for the money. I'm working and I don't really need the money from the government. Uh, I don't even have my own apartment. I don't even have a car here. But I just... uh, had the problem that makes me not be able to go back to my home and they still uh, should understand this and I really don't understand what kind of uh, humanity is this when they are not able to understand this.
4: While Sweden has always been more welcoming to refugees than other European countries, they have a standardized list of reasons someone can secure residence for. It's based on the UN Convention relating to the status of refugees which underlines e-regulations on asylum seeking. The Swedish Migration Agency defines a refugee as a person who has, quote, well-founded reasons to fear persecution due to race, nationality, religious or political beliefs, gender, sexual orientation, or affiliation to a particular social group.
1: The threat of honor killing didn't really fall under any of these categories, especially because Bahar couldn't prove that it would happen. <laughs> The
2: life is very difficult without a residence permit. Here in Sweden, wherever you go, they are asking you for your residency, for whatever you want to do, they ask you for your residency. Sometimes I'm not even able to sleep during the nights, and I'm always wondering what is going to happen.
1: The insecurity of not being able to get their residence weighed heavily on the entire family. It restricted their movement and made it hard for them to do anything, even for Ahmed to get a job. In 2017, almost six years after they first moved to Sweden, Lila started to get upset seeing her friends travel to different countries each summer while she had to stay in her little village for years without leaving.
2: I remember that so well. It was in 2017 when she first had the symptoms and started feeling uh, bad. It was also like the beginning of the school. Uh, she was a very energetic uh, child, but she, after during those times she almost completely changed and uh, she started to get worse and worse always. Children are supposed to have a good life, but uh, the mind curation agency forced us not to be able to provide this good life to the children. And this was like a shock for her.
1: Her symptoms gradually worsened. She went from being more quiet at school to becoming more quiet at home, before becoming mute entirely. Her energy was decreasing day by day and she was moving less and less until that day at school when she passed out. I asked Elizabeth what her conversation was like with the parents when they had first gotten back from the hospital.
3: I told them that she seemed to have got a very thorough examination at the hospital they had done, all the brain scan and all that stuff. And they hadn't found anything what they, what they had told the parents. But they were still worried. And of course, they thought that the child was dying, more or less.
4: But Elizabeth had good news.
3: And I said that I didn't know how long she should be in this condition because you, you, know, you didn't know that. and I, But I knew, I told them, that all the children I have seen have finally woken up. And we only have to figure out, more or less, what has caused the, the reason.
4: After the break, Elizabeth comes back with answers on how to wake up Leila. We're back. Elizabeth was certain that as soon as they figured out what caused Leila's slip into resignation syndrome, they could figure out how to wake her back up. And on one of our many car rides with Elizabeth, she told us that basically, the way resignation syndrome works is that it's triggered by trauma.
3: a Double trauma. The first trauma in the home country and the second trauma in Sweden.
4: Zena explained this to our team in one of our many calls about this story.
3: You need two traumas for
1: the kid to... Um, be in such a severe traumatic condition. The first trauma is something that usually happens in their home country and is usually one of the triggers for them leaving in the first place.
4: In Laila's family's case, this was Bahar's rape and her father's threats of killing her in the name of family honor.
1: And then the second trauma happens usually in Sweden when they are almost threatened into going back into that first traumatic place to begin with. So let's say uh, they're facing deportation or uh, they're refused asylum. And the kid in their head is thinking, if I leave, that means I have to go back home. And at this point, they usually associate home with very, very negative or traumatic um, things and memories. And so that sort of second trauma is what precipitates resignation syndrome starting.
4: In 2017, when Leila noticed the way her friends could travel freely, the realities of her situation began to sink in. The threat of deportation is the singular dominant reason as to why kids fall into resignation syndrome. Sometimes it happens when kids have to translate rejection letters to their parents from Swedish to their native language, or when they see their friend getting deported, or when they have to go to immigration lawyers and courts over and over again.
1: And this is something the Swedish government recognized. After years of approving permanent residence for families with resignation syndrome on an ad hoc basis, in 2013, the Swedish Board of Health and Welfare began to officially advise that a patient will not recover until their family have permission to live in Sweden.
4: A permanent residency permit is considered by far the most effective treatment, the manual says. The turning point will usually be a few months to half a year after the family receives permanent residence.
1: This aligns with Elizabeth's findings, from her work treating hundreds of patients since 2008.
3: We know uh, for sure too that if the whole family gets uh, security, some kind of security, uh, the child will recover. They don't step up the day they get permission to stay. It takes... uh, in the, for, for the ones who have got permanent permission to stay, we have uh, so many now, so what we can do statistics. It takes about two months before they show the first sign. The first sign is usually that they open their eyes.
1: And while the government supported the Board of Health and Welfare's findings, everything changed in 2015, when Sweden received more than 150,000 asylum applications. This was happening across Europe. And it shifted European politics towards a populist tone, where conservative politicians whipped fear around migration. It was the same case in Sweden. At the time, the Sweden Democratic Party, a right-wing party, was gaining influence, and they convinced the rest of the government that they should not be handing out permanent residencies to refugees anymore. And so they put in a law saying that refugees can only get temporary residences of up to 13 months each time, leaving families in a
3: perpetual state of insecurity. And with a general insecurity in the family, uh, the children don't wake up.
1: But Elizabeth found through her research and time with these families that security doesn't just come from immigration papers. Security can be perceptual. Perceptual security is the idea that you don't necessarily need a residence permit for these kids to feel secure. They just need to feel like their families and siblings are safe and happy. If families can maintain and grow an ordinary life, one with as little stress and fear as possible, children with resignation syndrome can feel that too and start to wake up. That's what Elizabeth has advised all of the families she works with to do, including Lila's parents. Can you ask then the parents, like, what sort of things that they do to take care of Laila while she was asleep, sort of the, the routine of taking care of her?
0: And, um
2: I wake up in early in the morning and at 7.30 I give her, her breakfast through the tube and then I take her to the school and there at school the, children, the teachers are taking care of her.
4: Leila's parents take her to school every day to have her feel a sense of normalcy. The school is wheelchair accessible and the teachers wheel her around from class to class. She sits in the back with her eyes closed and her back leaning against the 45-degree angle of her wheelchair. She doesn't raise her hand or respond to teachers' questions. But she's there.
1: But not everyone is supportive of this theory.
4: My name is Carl Salin.
7: I'm a pediatric neurologist, I'm 44 years old, and I'm currently as well doing a PhD project on resignation syndrome.
4: We spoke to Carl while we were in Sweden, to better understand the different ways doctors and scientists have tried to wake these kids up. Carl started working on resignation syndrome when he realized he didn't agree with the status quo. He fundamentally disagreed with the main understandings of the syndrome.
7: There are... Reports already in the literature that that was available uh, a long time ago of quite a substantial amount of children that haven't claimed they had suffered any trauma and their parents hadn't claimed it either. Uh, So there you you didn't even have the trauma element. And then, of course, another uh, finding that has been out there all the time in the literature is that there are other immigrant groups that describe similar uh, sorts of previous trauma and live under the same conditions of stress in Sweden. However, they never
4: uh, develop resignation syndrome. Karl thinks resignation syndrome can't really be classified as a medical disease. He thinks that it should instead be classified as a culture-bound disorder.
7: So what seems to stick out in terms of culture-bound phenomena is that they are more determined by the social cultural factors than by a biological factors that that you would uh, normally take to be uh, underlying a medical condition
4: basically what he's saying here is that there's something in these groups of children's cultures maybe something social or something genetic or something psychological that is making them respond to trauma by falling asleep in that sense it's bound to the culture this implies that it's really the family's own culture and society that leads to resignation syndrome.
1: Karl's theory began becoming more popular in 2015, when Swedes faced one of the biggest waves of immigration the country had seen. And in the press, they saw more and more cases of resignation syndrome, with kids falling asleep and often gaining asylum because of it. And so public opinion began turning. Some said that these parents, traditionally from former Soviet or Yugoslav countries, were somehow coaxing their kids or coercing them into sleeping, as a somewhat Trojan horse to get asylum.
4: This was one of the reasons why Elizabeth was so apprehensive about speaking to us to begin with. She was worried we'd spin our story into a negative press piece. Just like many had done before us. She was even apprehensive about trying to explain exactly why the syndrome only happens in Sweden, or whether culture is a part of it.
1: Instead, Elizabeth kept coming back to how to help these kids get better, giving them security.
3: Security is a concept you feel. It's a Maslow uh, concept which which you cannot describe, but it is uh, something which the parents transmit with how they hold their child and how they interact.
4: But Carl disagrees. He thinks quite the opposite. You need to focus on the child. And that's the only way you'll wake them up. Even if that means taking them away from their families. So there were very clear
7: statistical results, even though this was a small treatment group that uh, showed that uh, the best treatment that had been offered at that treatment home anyway was uh, separation and abstaining from involving the residency permit and uh, the asylum process. Which was interesting because uh, it was... The opposite of the recommended treatment that the Swedish National Board of Health
4: and Welfare had a few years earlier. Carl's experiment showed that the best recovery for these kids is to separate them from their families. Basically the opposite of Elizabeth's theory. That actually, they need to be removed from anything that could be a source of stress for them. If they're concerned about their family's well-being or deportation status, they won't have the space to recover, unless you separate them. We asked Elizabeth how she felt about this theory.
3: I don't want to discuss other people's results, but I can say that that paper, which is, uh, uh, has a very low power.
1: In the end, Elizabeth doesn't fundamentally disagree with Carl. She thinks that if the families agree, maybe separation for short periods could be beneficial for the kids. Especially if the parents are struggling too much to see their child in such a condition.
3: It is really that you give them perceptual security. They don't have to suffer from the parents' bad mood the whole time. And I agree to that. I, I, don't, I think that's very good. That's why I think that the whole family should be taken care of to start with.
4: But Elizabeth still thinks that separation should really only be considered on a case-by-case basis. Many of the children who fall into resignation syndrome have previous trauma of separation or loss and separating them from their families, could only dig them deeper into the syndrome, rather than get them out of it. And that was exactly the case of Ronnie.
1: So, when I ask your name, you're gonna tell me your fake name, okay? Not your real name. Are you ready? Yep. So, what's your name? My name is Roni. And why did you pick the name Ronnie? Because it's Cristiano Ronaldo.
4: We met Ronnie along with his parents and younger siblings in their home, in a small village several hours from Stockholm, uh-huh. we're using a fake name for Ronnie for his family's protection. They have been in Sweden since 2014, and Ronnie fell into resignation syndrome in 2017. A year or so into his illness, the Swedish medical board asked his parents whether they would be willing to separate with him. They wanted to see if it would help him wake up, but Ronnie's parents refused, in large part because of Ronnie's childhood history of separation.
3: He had already, when he was three years old, his uh, uncle was killed, murdered. And when he was five years old, he had to leave his grandparents and and another uncle. So he had been separated from other people earlier. And and to separate him from the last uh, connection he had in the family, I don't think that should have made
4: it. A few years later, in 2020... When COVID-19 swept the globe, Sweden stopped many deportation. And with the atmosphere of relief in the family home, Ronnie woke up.
3: And we can see he woke up during the perceptual (laughs) security anyhow. So it was not necessary to do that.
1: Ronnie doesn't remember much about being asleep and he doesn't like talking about it. But he does love talking about Cristiano Ronaldo.
2: I don't no, I just when I when I start looking looking at him when he's playing football, I just think he's the best. And I like him
1: and I and I like his name too. And you want to be like Ronaldo when you grow up? Yes. Ronnie's sister Yulia, yeah. and that's a fake name too, was sitting next to us when we were doing this. She was really keen to be yeah. recorded. Do you think he do you think he can be like Ronaldo? <laughs> Not really. Another football player, maybe. A star. She thinks you can be a football star. I asked Julia to tell us how she felt that first day when Ronnie recovered from the syndrome.
2: They just asked me, his friends asked me questions. And like, is this for real? I don't believe it's for real. They were really shocked. They were really shocked? Yeah.
1: Were you
2: really shocked? Like, I was, I was, like, happy for him to meet his friends. Because the only thing he does was lay on the, and that was kind of sad.
4: Just like with Yulia and Ronnie, Laila's connection with her siblings is very strong. Dylan thinks about her sister every day and talks to her all the time. She wasn't keen to talk on tape but she told us how sad it made her to see her sister on the wheelchair how she really liked to read to her her favorite books or talk to her about school or remnants about how they played basketball together layla's family hopes that one day she'll recover and go back to her old self but for now they celebrate the little wins a few months before we went to see layla's family they had a big win layla opened her eyes for the first time <laughs>
0: Dylan who
2: looks. <laughs> uh, it was actually Dylan who made this happen. Elita uh, Elizabeth was here and we were um, uh, eating on the table. But Dylan was very angry and she threw all the, the things on the table on the floor on the floor and she was very, very uh, angry. And then uh, this made uh, Layla kind of wake up and uh, then when we saw her that she opened her eyes, we were very, very happy.
4: It wasn't for very long. Just a second, and very, very faintly. But it was an improvement. She was finally getting better.
2: Uh, in the beginning, she was she had no reactions uh, at all, and not even one interaction. Uh, but now she sometimes opens her eyes, and sometimes like she moves a li- very little. But she still doesn't eat. She doesn't talk, and uh, yeah. she's been like this.
1: The family were really focused on maintaining a sense of normalcy for Laila in the hopes that it would speed her progress in waking up. And so, while we were there, Elizabeth told me to go introduce myself to her and say hi. Hello. Mm-hmm. Name? My name is Zaina. I'm from London to see you. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth motioned to me that I should try and see if she can squeeze my hand. Apparently, she had begun sometimes physically responding to people, only in the last few months.
3: Can you squeeze my hand? Can you squeeze it?
1: Yeah, I can feel your hands moving. can but you
3: see this is just rather slippery.
1: In the months since we've recorded this, Lila hasn't shown any more signs of improvement. But her family are hopeful. Hopeful that after five long years, she'll finally wake back up. It's been a tough time for them. But Elizabeth has always been there for them, like she always has.
6: Uh, Elizabeth you? Please... I'm
2: a foreigner, like a stranger in this country. I have no one, but Elizabeth is like a mother and she's like a family for me. And when I see her, I feel so much relief and very good. Uh, I. But the problem is that we are far away from each other and we are not able to meet uh, so often. Uh, and I have a child who is sick. If she wasn't sick I would uh, of course go more often to see her because she is my only family here. Uh, Elizabeth has always been with us through the difficult and the happy times as well. Uh, She's been always with us when we we were having bad days, and we wish her to be always with us in our good days as well.
1: (laughs) This episode is dedicated to my grandfather, who passed away two months ago. We spoke about the syndrome and my trip several times when I visited him in Cairo. He was a journalist himself, who had worked on many, many incredible stories. And so he was always very excited to hear about my work. When I was back in London after Christmas, he'd mention the story every time we called and ask how it's going and when it's going to come out. It's funny, I, I don't think he ever got the hang of what the podcast is. He always thought it was some sort of radio show or some sort of audio piece, but he was excited for me nonetheless. When I was out in Sweden doing my first real reporting trip, I felt just like him. A real journalist going out to tell a story that matters. It devastates me that he won't get to hear the story. I, I really wanted him to. I was really looking forward to hearing what he'd think, what questions he'd have, what it would remind him of from his own travels and work. Sweden was the closest I felt to him. Journalist to journalist. It made me so happy to see how proud he was of me. I really hope this episode makes them proud.
0: This episode was produced by Zena Duidad and Andrei Popoviciu and edited by me, Dana Balut, with additional support from Alex Atak and Nadine Shakir. Fact-checking on this episode was done by Dina Sabri, audio editing by Youssef Duwazu, and sound design and mixing by Mohamed Khlaizat.
1: There are a lot of people to thank today. Thank you to Amina Khalil, our incredible interpreter, who brought these stories to life. Thank you to Dr. Elizabeth hould who shared her experience with us. Spending three days with you was absolutely wonderful. Thank you to Dr. Carl Salin and Dr. Deborah Stein. And finally, thank you to the two families who shared their homes and lives with us. And thank you especially to Dylan, Memo, Ronnie, and Yulia for being such good sports.
0: If you want more resources about this syndrome or want to hear more from the families in this episode, sign up for our Patreon to get unlimited access to our feed. On there, Zaina and Andre will be sharing photos, videos, and reflections from their trip. Thank you and see you next week.